Amen. So we'll be looking at um, this morning the latter half of the passage we just read, verses 5 through 10. And as was the case last week, and as has been the case for some time now, Jesus is instilling an anti-Pharisaic mindset in his disciples. They, that is the Pharisees, have become a convenient foil against which to contrast, um, against which a contrast can be made with genuine righteous behavior. So whereas the Pharisees were inflated with self-righteousness, the disciples, Jesus says, his followers, are to be the exact opposite, as demonstrated in the parable. Now, the point of the parable is found in verse 10, but the occasion for the parable is found in verse 9. It reads, He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded him, does he? Now, the setting is a relatively small estate where the owner has means only for one slave. And the slave is responsible for caring for the property, plowing and tending the sheep, and um, the domestic duties within the home, uh, fixing and serving meals. And so Jesus asks a rhetorical question. Which of you will say to him when he is coming from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? Now, the obvious answer is that none of them would say those words to the slave. Rather, Jesus says, but will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and after you may eat and drink? Now, this was common fare for a slave. It was not time for the slave to eat and relax. There remained work to be done. And the work was not merely suggestion, but duty and responsibility, what is commanded of him. And so after the slave has done all that he's commanded, comes Jesus' question. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? And at issue here are not matters of mere politeness and courtesy, but debt and obligation. Commentators argue that the thanks that the passage is referring to would not refer to a verbal expression of gratitude or social politeness, as in someone has done me a favor, and of course I say thank you. What's being referred to here, they argue, is that um, the, the slave by his actions would place the master in his debt. So in other words, the master does not thank the slave because the slave is a slave, only doing what has been commanded of him. There's nothing owed in return. It's merely his job and responsibility. So the occasion for Jesus's parable begins to peek through. Demonstrated in his question is the attitude that he is opposing. And it's one that supposes obedience is a mean for a means rather for distinction and honor. And this attitude, of course, is nothing new. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verses 5 and 7, speaking of the Pharisees, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they brought in their phylacteries, that was a little prayer box they'd place on their heads, and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings 
in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. And so their position and stringent piety was for the express purpose of being noticed by men. Not a service to God, but to themselves. And it distinguished them from the common folk as particularly holy and devout, marked out by their religious garb and paraphernalia. It's the case of the older son, right? Acts, or, uh, Luke 15, is it not? It's the case of the older son. His younger brother, that sinner, squandered everything in a distant country. But he, respectable, respectable and dignified as he was, stayed and served his father's house diligently. And thus, he earned merit and favor in the eyes of the community. And so the Pharisees' obedience, their religious um, aura, you might say, was a means of separating themselves from the pack and exalting themselves to the head, right? To be noticed by men. Now, Jesus is set against this attitude for many reasons. But the one that comes into focus in our passage is that it causes stumbling blocks. It is inevitable, he says, that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. And indeed, woe to that through which they come, namely, a self-righteous and self-aggrandizing attitude. And so it's quite clear why such woe is deserved. It tears down the community of faith. It sets up stumbling blocks that trip and stumble God's people. It severs the bonds of common love and service. And what it does is put every person in competition with one another, vying to secure their honor. The Lord's brother, James, explains. James chapter 3, verse 16, he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. So the Pharisaic attitude, hungry as it is to obtain more honor than its peers, to distinguish itself from the pack, inevitably breeds jealousy and envy. And where they are, James says, disorder and every evil thing are not far behind. Now, C.S. Lewis elaborates a little bit on this in Mere Christianity. He says, The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I wanted to be the big nose at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big nose. Pride is essentially competitive. And now that is undeniably true. Pride comes in comparison. Not in having something or being something, but having something or being something that others are not. And indeed, so it is with honor. It's derived in distinction by being an elder brother and not a younger brother, in occupying the highest place on some hierarchy of, of worth, necessarily above others. And once that element of competition and comparison is gone, pride is gone. There's no longer any reason to boast in one's 
person or accomplishments. So therefore, to assert one's pride, to acquire the place of honor deserved them, one must outdo or otherwise demean their brother. No longer is my brother the rightful recipient of my love and service, but now he stands in my way. He's an obstacle to my greater honor. And this, in turn, fractures the bonds of community. Disorder ensues, James says. Now, harmonious order in community is achieved when each individual plays their part, as a musician does in an orchestra or a stage actor in a production. The various members defer and give place to one another in order to create something beautiful, something that would otherwise be impossible on their own. But that beauty is fractured. That symmetry is shattered when just one person abdicates their responsibility. And in communal terms, it's always pride that drives one to do so. The desire for one's own honor, rather than the common good of all, necessarily introduces envy and jealousy into the community, and those twin vices can only divide and conquer. They bring disorder and every evil thing. So thus, in response to the Pharisaic attitude, and for the sake of the community of faith, Jesus spins another parable, a simile, really. And it's designed, it's designed to press the Pharisees' logic against them, to measure them by their preferred standard of measure. And what was their standard of measure? Well, as Jesus' words indicate, it was in some way to suppose that their obedience earned them points with God, that it put him in their debt that he was obligated to repay them. So thus, Jesus takes their debt and obedience framework and situates it within its proper context. The relationship is not so much hired hand, um, employee to owner, hired hand to um, their their employer, but more to slave, uh, more as slave to master. So the slave's dutiful obedience carrying out his responsibilities, never earned him credit with his master, because, as we've said, it was merely that which he already owed. Now, in those days, a person um, would sell themselves into slavery when they had fallen into great debt. A better way to understand it is something like indentured servitude. There was no such thing as bankruptcy, no legal dissolution of debt, and a person, therefore, to repay their debt would sell their labor to their creditors. Thus a slave was under no illusion that their master owed them thanks or respite or anything whatsoever. Their labor, everything that they rendered in service to their master, was already that which they owed. It was never credit or could be counted as credit to them. And so this master-slave relationship serves as an analogy for humanity's relationship to God, and more particularly, the church's relationship to God. Our 
obedient service is never counted as credit because it's already owed. We are not to pat ourselves on the back or to seek some accolade for our obedience. Instead, Jesus says, when you do all the things commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. Now, the best rendering of that phrase comes from the older translations, which read, we are unprofitable slaves. In other words, we are not of benefit or we are not useful to God. He receives no good return on his investment. His resources are diminished, not compounded. And so ultimately, the analogy serves to instill a proper humility in us by reminding us simply that we are creatures. God can never be in our debt, obliged to repay us because everything is already from him. Our obedience is a paltry gift, considering it's he who gives us the ability to obey. Our praise is quite inconsequential, bearing in mind that it's he who puts breath in our lungs. And so it is with our love. It's a small thing indeed, set beside the Lord's everlasting love for us. So to be a creature then is to recognize that our entire being is received. We have no ground or origin in ourselves. Everything is derived from the Lord. Speaking to Job from the whirlwind, the Lord says, Job chapter 41, 11, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Now, the word given in Hebrew literally means to be in front of. That's why some translations render the word as preceded. Who has preceded me that I should repay him? The sense is that nothing has come before God or gotten in front of him so as to give him something he does not already have. Our obedience does not precede God or originate in some source outside of him, but already and always comes from him. Think of how the Apostle Paul ends his argument in, Revelation, or in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He ends in praise by saying, All things are from him, through him, and to him. Nothing originates with us. There is, therefore, no need that he should repay us, because whatever we give to him has already been given to us. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, What do you have that you did not receive? And why do you boast as if you had not received it? So, Elihu, another inspired uh, theologian, says the same. This comes from Job chapter 35, verses 7 and 8. He says, If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness is for a man like yourself, and your righteousness is for a son of man. And so our righteousness is not for God in the sense that it benefits or increases him, but it's for our fellow man. He says, if you are righteous, what do you give to him? He says, your righteousness is for a son of man. As Martin Luther once said, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. Thus, in relationship or in relationship to the eternal and all-sufficient one, we are indeed unprofitable servants, right? It could be no other way. 
And that relationship, God as the sole giver and man as the sole receiver, ought to be a means of great gratitude and joy, right? It's this wonderful recognition that everything I have is from the Lord. Every good gift is from the Father of lights. All of it comes from Him. Yet, yet, when our egos are gorged with pride and we forget our nature, that same truth is set forth as a means of humiliation. As the Creator said to poor Job, Job 38, 4 and 7, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. I think it was C.S. Lewis, or it was C.S. Lewis, who said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And now that is true sometimes. The statement is designed to protect against a very real self-hatred that we can mistake for humility, which in the end is only another form of pride. Now against that, we should be on guard We should be on guard, yet there are times when thinking less of yourself is exactly what humility means. Not in the sense that you degrade and demean your dignity, counting yourself as worthless, but in the sense that you recognize your creatureliness. To think less of yourself is to remember that you are dust and ashes, a mere breath, and that you rely entirely upon the mercy of God. So I'm an unprofitable slave, not because I possess no inherent value or worth, but because I contribute nothing to the relationship that I have with God. He only sustains and provides and gives. I only take and consume and receive. It can be no other way. Thus, no matter the great righteousness that I attain, I never have a ground for boasting. Rather, as the scripture says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, you see what Jesus is doing with his parable. He's bringing the Pharisees back down to earth. There, there are no such thing. Well, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, he's bringing them back to earth. And so, as it pertains to the individual, this doctrine is profoundly humbling. But as it pertains to the community... As it pertains to all of us and our relationship to one another, it's remarkably egalitarian. Why? Because it excludes the notion that someone can distinguish themselves from others, gaining a higher degree of honor through their exploits. That can never be the case because there is no such thing as an exceptional Christian. There are only unprofitable slaves. Every last person stands on the same plane because what counts is not the man who wills, as the Apostle Paul says, or the man who runs, but God who shows mercy. And so when we consider ourselves as unprofitable slaves, it flattens any man-made hierarchy of honor that might exist within the church. God, the Scripture says, is not a respecter of persons. To him, every man and woman and child stands on the same level plane. 
He does not recognize our value hierarchies and our honor codes. For as we just read, that which is highly esteemed in the sight of men is detestable in the sight of God. And so if God so judges, then so must the church. Rather than a man-made hierarchy of fictional honor with the most ambitious and gifted at the top and the timid and unable at the bottom, God desires that every person stand on the same plane with no distinctions made between them. For as the Apostle Paul says, Galatians chapter 3, we are all one in Christ. There's no room for these gradations of uh, honor that exists out in the world. And so we must resist then, obviously, the individual temptation to accord honor to oneself, but also the temptation to accord that honor to someone else. So James, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he counsels thus, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes in your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on my footstool. You have, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? So what does James oppose within the community of the faithful? Making distinctions among one another, exalting the rich man based on his status as a rich man, and denigrating the poor man because he lacks whatever the rich man has. Now, all such distinctions are social constructs, and they have no place in the church. God doesn't recognize them. He's not a respecter of persons. Because any distinction in honor is inevitably a distinction in holiness, and that is a denial of our gospel. Our righteousness is not our righteousness, but Christ's. And that righteousness is given to each of us equally. We all stand on the same plane. We are one in Christ Jesus. And that must be true, not only in principle, but in practice. The Apostle Paul takes the logic even further. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 23 and 25. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And on our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving it more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, and that the members may, be, may have the same care for one another. And so what is his aim within the church? Again, it's that there be no division, no distinctions within the body, but instead that every member may have the same care for one another. And so what this entails is that the less honorable, those that for whatever reason are marginalized in society, whoever they are, on them we bestow more abundant honor. They do not have anything to naturally recommend them. They slip, therefore, into obscurity, whereas the rest of us egoists can vouch for ourselves. They have no one to do that. It's our duty, therefore, to elevate them, that they may stand on that same place of honor as everyone else, because 
in reality, that is where they stand in Christ, right? So what's true of us in Christ must also be true of us in our church. And so this, a community of justice and equity, is what Christ died to create. And right, maybe you hear that, those words. They're not very good words today, justice and equity. Maybe you hear that and what comes to mind is a shrill, shrieking, lefty type. And you're thinking, give me anything but justice and equity. And to that, I can only sympathize, right? The self-righteousness and the moral superiority and the lofty heights of their enlightened opinions. Yet for all that, and loathe it though I do, we cannot allow that attitude to put us off from matters that are very near to the heart of God. They are essential to the gospel. In Galatians, when Peter violated the church's equity and justice by making distinctions between Jews and Gentile believers, right? what did he do? The, the certain men from Jerusalem came. Peter was eating with Gentiles, having full fellowship, and then when they came, he pulled away. He separated himself. What are we doing? Making tears and distinctions. What did the Apostle Paul do? He confronted him to his face, he said, and as his words, and in his words, because he was not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Those distinctions that honoring one above another, he says, is a denial of the truth of the gospel. And so the good news demands that we pursue this equality and make no distinctions among ourselves. Now, of course, what I'm talking about here is the distinction of honor, the distinction of dignity. There's a distinction of authority. There's a distinction of kind of a, 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 a natural order that's there. But because someone has more authority or because they have uh, more presentable gifts or whatever it may be, we don't accord them more honor. Everybody stands on the same plane. That, that's what we must strive for within our church. So thus, rather than shrinking back from the discussion and writing it off altogether, um, we must be resolved to, to press into it, that we might demonstrate to our peers the justice and righteousness of God. And besides, unless we're raging, egomaniacal despot types, this is something that we desire, that each person, that our own children, that ourselves, that our spouses, that everybody would stand on that same place. Christ's desires are implanted in our hearts through the Spirit. So equity and equal standing and dignity for everyone in the church makes deep sense to our minds because it's fundamentally a Christian idea. It comes from the gospel. There is no one superior in our house, or rather, there's only one superior in our house, and that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. But such ideals are only attainable when each individual considers themselves in relation to God and understand themselves to be an unprofitable slave. Only when my self-image accords with reality will I be able to treat my brothers and sister, sisters with the dignity that's theirs in Christ. So, he says, you're all unprofitable slaves, and that's designed to counteract stumbling blocks. But Jesus' master-slave analogy has more to teach us. Indeed, we are unprofitable slaves because, he teaches us to say, we have only done that which we have ought to done. 
And so what does this refer back to? Jesus' command to forgive is what it refers back to. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, this may seem like an extraordinary deed in our eyes, but according to God, it's merely that which we ought to have done. Now, ought is a word used to indicate duty or correctness, the dictionary tells me. And both those elements are present in Jesus' words. We ought to treat our brother this way because it's what's commanded of us. It's our duty. And we ought to treat our brother this way because there is a certain correctness about it. It's fitting and somehow appropriate. And I find that sense, the correctness of it, the appropriateness of it, to be more, the more compelling sense. Commands are necessary, but they are limited if the heart cannot be motivated. It's an external command that's not moving the heart with it, but correctness or fittingness has power to move the heart. So St. Augustine says in his um, book, Instructing Beginners in the Faith, he says, There is quite obviously no stronger motivation for love, either in its initial stages or in its growth, than for the person who does not yet love to discover that he is loved. And for that person who is the first to love, to hope that his love can be reciprocated or have clear signs that it is already so. In other words, another's love for me ignites my love for them as fire ignites fire. I may be hardened toward them initially, but in time, my cold heart warms to their love. They win me over. And there is a correctness and a fittingness about my response to their love. It ought to be returned. And in the same way, we ought to love our brethren because that love has already been given to us. The Apostle John says, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 11, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God um, loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. And so the love that has been lavishly poured out upon us ought not to terminate in us, but to fill our hearts and overflow into a sincere love for one another. He has loved us. It is fitting. It's appropriate. It's correct that we love one another. And so at the end of the day, I'm an unprofitable slave because my love for my brother is nothing exceptional or unprecedented, even forgiving him seven times a day for the very same sin, but merely an appropriate response to God's greater love for me. It's only what I ought to have done. It's only appropriate that I do these things. And it's simply not any love that I give to my brother, but the divine love, the love that is God and that is from God. God's love was revealed to us in this way, the Apostle John says. The love given to us that we are to give to others has a specific character and form. It's not any love but it's love that's revealed to us in this way. 
And that love receives its um, specific character and form in Christ's incarnation and crucifixion. All right, we didn't love God, but He loved us. And what? He sent His Son, incarnation, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, uh, crucifixion. And so what more than anything else characterizes Christ's descent into death, His love for us? It's humility. He humbled Himself, the Apostle Paul says. Humility is the concept that gives love its concrete definition. There are all kinds of loves. But the divine love, the love that is God and is from God, receives its specific character and form in the incarnation of Christ. And what we find there is humility. So there's man's love that is tainted by self-concern and self-regard. And then there's God's love that's perfectly humble, perfectly free from ego and self-regard, embodied in the crucifixion and incarnation of Jesus Christ. So this is love. And John says, and this is how we ought to love one another. And the Apostle Paul puts it in its most concrete terms. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. I'm an unprofitable slave. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And so I'm to approach every person as more important than myself. Because that's how Christ approached me and all mankind. And his humility, and I think this is, this is where we'll draw things to a close, it can't be missed. His humility is directed at an end. And it's, the end is the eternal good and well-being of his people. That is, humility is not about self-abasement and meekness for its own sake, but for the sake of one's brothers and sisters. Right? Humility is really about true greatness and true power. Greatness is not, as the Pharisees supposed, uh, to sit at the top of the hierarchy, but it's to be at the bottom like Christ and to exalt others, to lift them up. And so it is with power. Power is not exercised or measured in exercising it over others, but in empowerment, as Jesus has done. And so this makes Christ truly great and truly powerful. He humbles himself for the sake of his people. In his lowliness, he's exalted. In his weakness, he is powerful. And thus, at his glorious name, our passage continues, every knee will bow, and of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.